Hello, this is another episode of Lunar Poetry Podcast. I'm David Turner. How are you lot? I don't normally talk about my private life in the podcast and certainly not in these pre-written intros, though this piece of news straddles the private and professional. My co-editor and sometime host Lizzie and I have gotten married, which is great for us, I suppose. This means next time she pops up on the podcast she'll be Lizzie Turner. Which is all a bit weird. But then life is weird. Hope you all enjoyed our recent 100th episode. I didn't appear on that one, so didn't get a chance to say thank you to everyone that has listened and contributed to the series. We wouldn't have reached 100 episodes without that support. A big thank you also to Arts Council England who have enabled me to make the series into a better quality and more representative project. As always, you can follow us at Lunar Poetry Podcast on Facebook and Instagram at silent underscore tongue on Twitter, and you can subscribe to the series on SoundCloud, iTunes and Stitcher, or wherever else you download your podcast. There is a transcript of this conversation available to download at www.lunarpoetrypodcast.com, along with the other 45 or so that we've got finished so far with the aid of Arts Council funding. Coming up in the second half of this episode, we have Zaina Hashembeck, but first it's Kim Moore. Kim is a poet, educator and co-founder of the Kendall Poetry Festival. I met Kim at the Verve Poetry Festival in Birmingham back in February of this year. We got together quickly on the final day of the festival for a chat about her collection The Art of Falling, Scaffolding and her PhD. Here's Kim. Enjoy. My people. I come from people who swear without realising they're swearing. I come from scaffolders and plasterers and shoemakers and carers, the type of carers paid pence per minute to visit an old lady's house. Some of my people have been inside a prison. Sometimes I tilt towards them and see myself reflected back. If they were from Yorkshire, which they're not, but if they were, they would have been the ones on the pickets shouting scab and throwing bricks at policemen. I come from a line of women who get married twice. I come from a line of women who bring up children and men who go to work. If I knew who my people were in the time before women were allowed to work, they were probably the women who were working anyway. If I knew who my people were before women got the vote, they would not have cared about the vote. There are many arguments among my people. Nobody likes everybody. In the time of slavery, my people would have had them if they were the type of people who could afford them, which they probably weren't. In the time of casual racism, some of my people would and will join in. Some of my people know everybody who lives on their street. They're the type of people who will argue with the teacher if their child has detention. The women of my people are wolves, and we talk to the moon in our sleep. Thank you very much, Kim. Thanks for joining us. Do you ever read that poem in front of your people? Yeah, I have done. I, yeah. I sent it to my mum when it was a lot rawer and a bit more brutal, I think, and she was quite upset by some of the lines. So I edit, yeah, I edited those bits out. So it was quite. A, I would never have published it if she hadn't kind of agreed to it. So it was a lot more brutal before you edited it. It or... was more direct, I think, yeah. and it wasn't as good. I think it was a weaker poem as well because it was a first draft. Mm. So I think it was good actually that that she said, oh, I'm not sure about that line. And then, yeah, and I think it's stronger now. Yeah. Where are your people from? All my family live in Leicester, from two kind of estates in Leicester. So my dad's family are from Saffron Lane Estate and yeah. my mums are from Bornston. Okay. As a bit of context for people that are listening, it's February the 19th and we're in Birmingham and you've been performing and appearing at Verve Poetry Festival. So I heard you read on the first day that I arrived, which was a Friday, and a lot of what you read seemed to be informed by identity and family and history. Does that inform all of your writing? I don't know. I always start with the My People one because yeah. it's kind of an introduction yeah. in itself. I suppose there's a lot of poems in the book about my dad probably more than my wider family. My dad's a scaffolder and I'm kind of obsessed or fascinated by the world of scaffolding because it's a very masculine area still. It's one of the few places or jobs where there aren't many women working in it. I've been to work with my dad and just kind of sat and observed it and I like talking to him about it. 
but just being a woman on a scaffolding site kind of changes the atmosphere, yeah. changes the way the men talk and react. I did say to my dad once, are there any women scaffolders? And he said, oh, yeah, yeah, there are. There's one in Birmingham. <laughs> <coughs> so, um, yeah, so there is one apparently, but... I think I mentioned it after the reading the other day. So I served a joinery apprenticeship and there's a, there's a big step from that to poetry, but there's an even bigger step, I think, from joinery to scaffolding because even on building sites, it still didn't really mix mm. with the scaffold as much. They're a bit of a breed alone, <laughs> aren't they? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and we're sort of talking about like the culture of one of the few jobs still in the country you can get without being, really being asked too many questions. Yeah, and I think it's probably... I don't know, one of the physically most most demanding jobs and I'm kind of, yeah, I'm interested in, in that as well that I've been writing some new poems about my dad being a scaffolder and asking him questions about the the kind of, he left school when he was 16 and started scaffolding and he literally just walked into the yard and said, can I have a job and then became a, became a labourer and his first job was going up the um, Leicester power station up the funnel and in those days you didn't have to pass any qualifications you just got you just followed the scaffolder up as the labourer yeah yeah yeah. so he was telling me about that and he says that scaffolders they try and break someone new they call it breaking them so they what you work them and work them until they kind of cry or fall over or (laughs) and I was really appalled by this and I said well you haven't done that to anybody have you dad and he was like yeah of course I have and I said but did did they do that to you as well and he went nobody's ever broke me (laughs) yeah and I think I have that in me but with with like running and pushing yourself to physical limits do you find that as you've dedicated more of your time and your life to writing do you feel there's an even greater need to find a physical outlet now I don't know I just I just like being outside and yeah yeah, running's kind of become my social life now Mm. as well because I I definitely feel like we were chatting briefly uh, yesterday about um we're both interested in running, but also I think we've got quite similar backgrounds. My dad left school at 14, became a plumber. He's now a caretaker in the school. There's this, I mean, there's one issue of like the generation I'm part of, you can never be as working class as your parents because you had to finish school and, and, and all that that's attached to it. But also having had a physical job previously, I find it hard to dedicate too much of my time just to writing because I feel like I'm not working. Do you have that? Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I feel constantly guilty when I'm, sat around yeah. reading because I'm, I'm doing a PhD now and I'm finding it really hard to well not really hard because I'm, I'm obviously doing it but a lot of the time I sit around all day in my dressing gown and just <laughs> don't get dressed all day and feel like a bit of a slob and read a book and then I think what have I done with my day I've only read a book can you sort of complete a PhD just by watching Bargain Hunt <laughs> we'll find out in yeah. three years time <laughs> Your reading the other day, I think, struck a chord with me because there were so many elements that I recognised. Coming from that kind of family, I'm constantly feeling almost fraudulent. Now, I was talking to my partner the other day, Lizzie. I can't believe that my career now is making a literature <laughs> podcast. So, because it just seems bizarre. I've done a lot of jobs. I've had a lot of, you know, I'm quite good at getting sacked or jacking jobs in. So, I've had a lot of jobs. But this one sort of stuck with it and it just feels ridiculous. I can't believe I've come. I feel hugely lucky as well because I really enjoy what I'm doing, but it does feel bizarre. Do you feel like you ever have to excuse it? Yeah, I can identify with that feeling of fe- feeling bizarre, but I think I've always I've always had that because I was like me and my twin sister were the first people to go in our family to go to university, and then I went to a music college, so that's quite you know my my brother-in-law still calls me student instead of instead of Kim and tax dodger and. <laughs> <laughs> But, you know, in a, in a very friendly way. And I wouldn't want to give the impression... I hope that, that poem shows a kind of love for my family as well as, like, a critical eye. That feeling of being a fraud. Yeah, I think, sit and think, I can't believe I'm getting paid to sit around mm. and... Do you feel like there's a pressure on your writing to talk about identity, to reaffirm where you've come from? No, I just... I don't think... I just write about what I like... Yeah. What I know. Oh, and that was definitely an assumption I was making just because of the short, like the small uh, sample of your work that I've seen at the reading. So just. Um, yeah, I mean, I want to write the type of poems that my family could read and understand. Yeah. And, you know, my mum and dad aren't into poetry or anything, but yeah, I, I want to read, I want to write poems that they could read and connect with, <clears throat> apart from when I'm moaning about them. So I think next it'd be good to talk about your music education. But we'll take another reading first and then move on to that. 
could we please have your most trumpety poem? <laughs> <laughs> For the last 13 years, I've worked as a peripatetic brass teacher, which involved going around to th- about 25 schools a week and teaching whole classes of eight-year-olds. So 38-year-olds get a trumpet, a cornet or a baritone. And then the teacher gets a trumpet, a cornet or a baritone, and then we all kind of make beautiful music together. This poem's a kind of list of all the terrible things that have happened to me as a trumpet teacher. So it's all true, but I've changed the gender of the children to kind of protect their identities because that's the kind of responsible teacher that I am. The trumpet teacher's curse. A curse on the children who tap the mouthpiece with the heel of their hand to make a popping sound, who drop the trumpet on the floor then laugh, A darker curse on those who fall with a trumpet in their hands and selfishly save themselves. A curse on the boy who dropped a pencil on the bell of his trombone to see if it did what I said it would. A curse on the girl who stuffed a pom-pom down her cornet and then said it was her invisible friend who did it. A curse on the class teacher who sits at the back of the room and does her paperwork. A curse on the teacher who says, I'm rubbish at music in a loud enough voice for the whole class to hear. A curse on the father who coated his daughter's trumpet valves with Vaseline because he thought it was a thing to do. A curse on the boy who threw up in his baritone as if it was his own personal bucket. Let them be plagued with the urge to practice every day without improvement. Let them play in concerts each weekend which involve marching and outdoors and coldness. Let their family be forced to give up their Saturdays listening to bad music in village halls, or spend their Sundays at the bandstand, them, one dog and the drunk who slept there the night before, taking up the one and only bench. Gods, let it rain. Thank you very much. My uh, friends have a nine-year-old daughter, and she's just started to learn to play the trombone. Nice. hilarious. Hello, Astrid, if you're listening, or if your dad's (laughs) listening. (laughs) <laughs> could be worse. Well, I shouldn't say that. I was going to say it could be worse. It could be the violin, but yeah. I shouldn't say that as a musician. <laughs> so you worked for 13 years as a, as yeah. a music teacher. Mm-hmm. What does parapatetic mean? Like travelling around to different schools. Is that all that means? Yeah. Giving yourself yeah. some side there. Yeah. Travelling music teacher is what yeah. you are. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I hate saying brass teacher as well because people always mishear me and think I say brass teacher. and So that can go horribly wrong. Yeah. That experience, that that teaching period, has that informed your, not your right, because obviously it's something that you would write about naturally because it's a big period of your life, but does it inform the way you write? Or I know because you obviously run workshops as well. How does that inform the way you teach? Is it easier to teach a load of rowdy eight-year-olds than sort of (laughs) mid-thirties creative writers? (laughs) No, I would say the eight-year-olds have got it over. Teaching in schools is probably been one of the hardest things out of everything I've done and I actually said this to one of my classes which was really awful but I'd just been into a prison <laughs> into a men's prison and I was like you lot are worse worse behaved than the prisoners <laughs> that I've just been working with but I actually didn't start writing about it until I went part-time and got a bit of bit of distance okay. from it I think it's impossible to write about it when you're in it mm. full-time the connections with teaching and poetry is as a teacher you get like these phrases that you come out with all the time like catchphrases and they are sometimes they are like lines of poetry and you use language to make the kids to make children hopefully make them laugh maybe sometimes I'm too sarcastic with (laughs) for them to get it but um yeah kind of using this repetition of of phrases and I realized when I became a trumpet teacher I was repeating phrases that my trumpet teacher had said to me when I was younger like they just kind of rolled off you know, and things that my band conductor did and said, I repeated with my band, which I didn't know that I'd kind of internalised them. And so you have all this stuff to draw on, which I think is like a poem, like memorising it. you should say that I still have phrases from my apprenticeship that run through my head. If I pick up certain tools, I remember the way it was explained to me. You're definitely right. There were a lot of, is that a whole thing with received wisdom, isn't there? These things are just passed down mm. without question and you pick them up rightly or wrongly and the reason that you moved, moved away from teaching was or music teaching is that purely to focus on the writing 
I started working as a poet, kind of like running workshops basically, and then started getting invitations to readings. And for the last two years, I've been full time. And then I got invited to read at a festival or to be, maybe it was like a, a residency or something, and I had to turn it down because because I was working. So work were pretty good with letting me off every now and then to go and do poetry, but there's only so many times I could get away with it. And I was really gutted that I had to miss out on going to this festival I really wanted to go. I'd been moaning and moaning about missing out on opportunities. And then it was kind of a snap decision. I just... I was at a training day for work in the first day in September, talking to my line manager about it. He was a friend as well. And I said, oh, how would it be next year if I went part-time? Like, would Is that possible to kind of reduce my hours? And she said, oh, you could do it this year if you wanted, because why? They were just keen to get rid of you. Probably, yeah, they were keen to get rid of me. Maybe they didn't have enough, because the contract yeah. I was on, I was a full-time teacher. So if they didn't have any work for me, I still got paid exactly the same. I, it yeah. was a really good, you know, I was on a really good um, deal, basically. That was like the 1st of September, and by the 2nd of September, I was down to four days a week. It doesn't sound like that big a deal, but as a teacher, it's quite a big deal because your job security is gone then. Once I'm part-time, then they can re- they could reduce my hours mm. by a certain percentage. You know, you've got less pension and blah, blah, blah. Yeah. And so for me, it was like a massive thing, but then I decided it in an afternoon and then went back home to my husband and said, I'm part-time now. <laughs> <laughs> there was some funding for a PhD, and I thought, oh, I'll just go for it for the experience of an interview. And then I ended up getting it. Yeah, and then I had to hand my notice in. So again, it wasn't really thought out or planned. I just ended up... And where are you doing your PhD? Uh, Manchester Metropolitan. Okay. I'm basically looking at how we write about everyday sexism. So I want to look at, like, small and annoying acts of sexism and kind of microaggression and how how you write poetry about that. What happens if you put something small that you usually ignore into a poem and create space around it yeah it's been interesting so I've started writing the I started writing the poems already and it's in I get kind of quite interesting reactions to them how's it been working so far you choose a small act or a microaggression and develop that yeah well so far I've just been looking back at my own kind of experiences because I think for me, a lot of it, I didn't notice it was happening at the time and I've only become kind of more aware of it um, as I've been writing. So my dad being a scaffolder, kind of this very masculine environment, and then I grew up in the brass band movement, which is kind of very male-dominated. And then I went to music college and there's a lot more male brass players. I think I was the only female brass player in my year, but there was another one like the year above. So looking at those looking at those experiences, I felt like there was only there was two ways of kind of getting along at music college as a as a as a woman playing a trumpet was to either go out drinking and become one of the lads or to go out with one of the blokes, and they were your two options. But a lot of the a lot of the kind of everyday sexism I'm talking about, maybe the guys that are doing it wouldn't really realise either, and kind of unconscious or. Well, we sort of touched on it a little bit yesterday, we won't go into that too much, but with people that organise events and lack of representation on panels at literature events and re- you know the people that are coming and reading, I think a lot of it is just a, a lack of awareness around mm. the issue, isn't it? I don't think it's not any, for most people, it's not some sort of evil conspiracy where they're trying to keep people down. I think people are just very un- unaware of what yeah, their actions not. mean and the lack of representation, the message that that sends out, it just keeps meaning that that kind of behaviour seems okay still, doesn't it? Yeah, so an example, so I was in um, at work and um, I'd, had a, not, I'd had a disagreement with another a female teacher and I was quite kind of worked up about it and I was telling a male teacher about this and he said, I bet she's got a big pubic mound, I bet she's covered in spiders' legs. And uh, I was really shocked. And but instead of saying, instead of challenging it and saying that's really inappropriate, you know, blah blah or whatever, I just scuttled off. I went, I'm going to make a cup of tea, and I scuttled off to the staff room. And then he kind of followed me into the staff room, and we kept, we were talking about what had happened again. And then, then he said, if she does it again, you should flash her your tits. And again, I didn't say anything. I just carried. I went, do you have milk in your tea or something? And then we, ju- I just changed the subject and. And went home and got like was really angry about it afterwards, and that's a really familiar feeling for me. Like, 
things like that have happened where I've not said something at the time and then I feel angry with myself for not saying it. So for me, that's where the poetry is, that this guy who I actually really like, I think he's a really nice bloke, he's a friend, but he's also saying these really inappropriate things. That contrast between the two is interesting, but also looking at my own my own reaction to it and interrogating my own collusion with that, because how is he ever going to... If I don't say that was really inappropriate, why did you say that, then he'll just carry on and say it again. And There was a very interesting episode of This American Life, actually, and it was a reporter in Sydney, and she was out challenging men on like the sort of this main strip where clubs are about their inappropriate advances towards women in the street when they'd been drinking. And this one guy claimed that he would just, if he saw a group of women, he'd run up and slap one of them on the, on the arse. <laughs> And she was like, well, how do you get, why do you think that's okay? And he was like, well, they don't say anything, they just laugh. And she was like, have you ever, have you ever thought that maybe they just laugh because they're scared or they don't know how to react in the situation? The person's silence in that moment is not <laughs> them giving you the okay for your behaviour. And I, I think they speak to three guys on the bro- on, in that little segment and none of them get it at all. Mm. <laughs> none of them understand what they're doing is un- inappropriate because they haven't been told outright and they can't get their head around the fact that yeah, like as I said, silence isn't a green light. <laughs> yeah, silence is a, is a coping mechanism. And, yeah. Or laughing, you know, laughter is a coping mechanism. You know, making a joke out of it, minimising it. So, yeah, I'm, I'm interested in it. I think sometimes you end up, you have to pick your, your, bat- your battles as well. And Well, actually going back to the, your first poem, I mean, the line about if in the casual racism and my people some of them would uh, join in. Mm. You know, I'd definitely, the wider family, I could definitely pick out people who I know would behave inappropriate at times. And it is about knowing when, unfortunately, still in public, if you were going to pick everything up that everyone said that was inappropriate, you'd, you'd just be doing that all the time. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. And, and depending on whether you feel like you're, if you see a group of guys behaving badly at night, there aren't many people who are going to challenge mm. five or six drunk men because mm-hmm. you don't know what's going to happen, do you? You yeah. know, even if you, you know, no, it doesn't matter who you are. And, and I was rambling a bit there, but yeah, I, I think actually that idea of contrast as well in the, in the my people poem, not just the racism, but the, the line about the women in my family before they had the vote, they would not have cared about the vote. This idea of working women, the vote was kind of this, you know, this thing that didn't affect affect their lives. But the women in my family are very strong, very opinionated but they wouldn't call themselves feminists. Mm. I, I, I like things that kind of slip between the cracks and, yeah, they do. They might say casually racist things and they're also, they can be nice people as well and how do you reconcile that? Like, it, nothing's simple, nothing's kind of... I hate these moments because it seems like I'm tr- when you move on to a serious subject, it seems like you're tri- trivialising them, but we're running, the time's running on. So I think we'll finish with another poem, if that's right. OK. OK. I'm going to read the title poem of my latest collection, The Art of Falling, which was published by Seren in 2015. The Art of Falling This is for falling, which is so close to failing, or to falter or fill. As in, I faltered when I heard you were here. As in, I filtered you out of my life. As in, I've had my fill of falling. A fall from grace, a fall from God. To fall in love or to fall through the gap. Snowfall, rainfall, falling stars. The house falls into disrepair. To fall in with the wrong crowd. To fall out of love. To fall like Jessica who fell down a well and watched the bright disk of the sun and moon slowly passing. For twins who start so close together they must fall apart for the rest of their lives or be damned. To fall down a hill like a brother. To follow like a sister. To be a field and fall fallow, to fall pregnant, for vertigo, the cousin of falling, for towers and stairs and pavements, which are the agents of falling, for the white clifftop of a bed, for climbers and roofers and gymnasts, for the correct way to fall, loose-limbed and floppy, to fall apart after death, for ropes and fences and locks, which carry the act of falling inside, for fall which over the ocean means autumn, 
which means leaves like coins of different colours dropped from the pockets of trees, which means darker evenings, which means walks with the dogs, which means walking alone and not falling apart at the sound of your name, which, God help me, sounds like falling. Thank you very much, Kim. Thanks for the chat. <laughs> That's that it? Woo! <laughs> <laughs> Goodbye. <laughs> Peace out. Next up is poet Zaina Hashembeck. I met up with Zaina at a pretty noisy Royal Festival Hall while she was over in London recently. We chatted about her recently released collection, Louder Than Hearts, and punched the poetry night she established in Dubai. Before that, remember projects like this podcast series exist on the back of word of mouth recommendations, so if you like what we do, then please tell friends and colleagues. We also have an audience feedback form on our website. And if you'd like to fill out one of those for us, then go over to www.lunapoetrypodcast.com and click on the audience feedback tab. Here's Zaina. I'm Zaina Hashembek, and I'm a Lebanese poet, now based in Dubai. I'm the author of two collections and two chapbooks. Most recently, my book, Louder Than Hearts was released in April 2017. I'll begin with a poem from, from this one. I guess it makes sense to begin with the very first poem in this book because I do feel that it does introduce the themes in that book quite well. A small clarification about who Sheikh Imam is. There's a reference here to uh, someone called Sheikh Imam. And Sheikh Imam was, a, was an Egyptian singer and composer. Uh, who used to sing the uh, colloquial Egyptian poetry of poet Ahmed Fuad Nagm. So it's, it's this sort of political satire, uh, really lovely stuff. So the, the reference to Sheikh Imam here is, is that. And this is a ghazal. Uh, it's called Broken Ghazal Speak Arabic. I write in English the way I roam foreign cities full of street light and betrayal until I find a coffee shop that speaks Arabic. If we were born in the cities we long for, love, Paris, Prague, New York, what languages would they have taught us to speak? Arabic says the best singers are the peddlers, and the Quran, would it still lift us if it didn't speak Arabic? Sure, there's always Lenin, but I wonder if we would have found Sheikh Imam, who reminds us the wound is awake and love speaks Arabic, who reminds us no one can colonize a river and a tyrant is always afraid of the poet, especially if she speaks Arabic. They say people who grow up in two languages have stronger memories and they can hear the birds on the balconies speak Arabic and they know a mountain of orange life jackets looks like spring, though it won't revive the dead who speak Arabic but no longer need a visa or translation. And you, Zena, what else? Can you do but whisper to these broken lines? Speak, speak Arabic. Thank you, Zaina. Um, just uh, <laughs> as a clarification for the listeners, that once again, as usual, I'm recording at the Southbank Centre in London, and there is somebody practicing. It sounds like the Phantom of the Opera, doesn't it, or something like that? It's like some sort of big church organ. I forget what they're called. Anyway, thank you for joining us, Zena. Thank you for really, having me. Um, I was really hoping you were going to read that poem. I had a quick look oh, yeah. through the collection yesterday and today. We only met a couple of days ago, so I don't know your work that well. I was really interested to hear how it sounded in your own voice mm. um, and how you would read it. Why were you hoping for that particular poem? I'm I really like the. I like the imagery and I also like touching on the ideas around Arabic and English mm. and the use of both languages. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I don't know, it was, I just thought it was really beautiful as well. Um, so we met 
on Saturday through a mutual friend, Raymond yeah. Entrebus, yeah. and he threw us together in a pub <laughs> and was like, you have to talk, you have to talk. And sometimes that's all that's required to meet up for a podcast chat. It was really a lovely coincidence. Yeah. I, mean, I was just wondering what was Ray Raymond doing exactly and sort of saying hi to you. And it was definitely one of those moments where he knew exactly in his head <laughs> what he wanted to tell us, but he didn't get around to telling no. us very quickly. <laughs> I'm that, glad was, that was a nice moment, though. I I'm think glad that's for us together stuck because, in my head yeah. somehow. So you're in London visiting from Dubai. Yeah, and, and I'm hot in London. Like, it, there's, there's, like, it's hot in London. I was warned that I should have a coat and a scarf, which I did bring, and I'm sitting here sweating. Yeah. You know, and, and I come from Dubai, which is rather ironic, but yes. It's yes. Um, muggy, as we would say in <laughs> South London today. It's quite... People are going to be sticky by this afternoon. Yeah. It's not, yeah, it's not very pleasant to be on a bus or the tube. So what's the main reason for your visit? I believe you're doing some talks and some readings. The main visit is the talk that I'm doing this evening with yeah. the Asia House Bagri Literature Festival. Yeah. And it's a talk that's called uh, Sin Cities Beirut After Dusk. There's going to be me and uh, Salim Haddad, the author of Guapa, Nasri Atallah, and the moderator will be Zahra Hankir. And we're all either Lebanese or have some Lebanese roots. And we'll be speaking about the city of Beirut and how it's, it inspires our work. Mm -hmm. So that's the main reason why I'm here. And yes, I've also done a, a reading a few days ago with my fellow 2016 laureates choices with Smith Doorstop. So that was mm. fun. That was lots of fun. So how influential is Beirut in your writing then? Is it just coincidental that you've been asked on to that? No, no, no. Okay. It is rather influential in my I think it will always be, I'll, I'll always carry Beirut somehow in my writing. Mm -hmm. But it was definitely more influential in my first book, which was out in, in 2014. That, that first collection was called To Live in Autumn. And in my head, Autumn was Beirut. Okay. And the entire collection obsesses with the city. But I think I am no longer there, as in I've moved beyond that intense obsession just with Beirut. To Live in Autumn was dedicated for my Beirut, who inspires. Mm -hmm. This one is dedicated to our broken languages and our broken cities, plural. So I don't necessarily just have Beirut in mind anymore, but rather uh, the Arab city and the idea of Arab cities and displacement and languages and then, and, and, and Beirut will always be there. It's just no longer the center mm -hmm. uh, in my writing. How would you sum up the connection between, or the analogy between Beirut and autumn, first of all? Oh yeah, that was in my head back in, you know, 2006, when I came up with it, or no, I actually came up with it rather late in, in the writing process. But for me, back then, autumn was a season that is sort of in-between season. It was an in-betweenness. It's not really hot, it's not really cold, it's not summer or winter. It's like an in-betweenness in my head, autumn. And, and I feel that Beirut exists in that liminal mm -hmm. sort of space, that, that it exists between different languages, it exists between the East and the West, it exists between war and peace. We're always juggling what might be contradictions but aren't as we navigate Beirut. Actually, yeah, now you say that, having seen the collection that you're reading from today and the, the sort of disjointed nature of a lot of the forms, that's what I'm struggling with. It's, I think it's wrong to use the word disjointed just because there are breaks. There is a change and a switch and a flow between images and ideas. There's a mm. lot of talk of, um, they're quite beautiful images, but it's rooted in quite gritty urban environments. You talk oh, a yeah. lot about the street. There's a really beautiful line about is it gifting, gifting a street that's in flight as well? What was that? Right. Oh, that's in the poem Relentless, I think, where, where the image is... Hold on, I'm finding the exact image, because otherwise I would be paraphrasing my poetry, and that just <laughs> comes out horrible. So I drew him a tree without roots, a street with enormous wings, and said, here is a tree that cannot be uprooted, a street that will take flight before it explodes. Yeah, so there are these very heavy images, but everything's in flux, isn't it? And everything's... Sort of, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and it's interesting that you say urban, because I, I always say that the urban always makes me delirious. Like, I, I am in love with any ur urban space that you throw me in, Beirut being one of them. But also being in London now, I, I'm walking around going, ah, you know. So, yes, the urban, I think, features really intensely in, 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 in all my books, I guess, in all my writing. Mm. 
yesterday I recorded um, what will come to be episode 100. One of the subjects of the podcast was a Sudanese-American writer, Safiya El-Hilo. Safiya El-Hilo? Yeah. yeah. And so, but there were, there were a lot of links between the use of Arabic phrases in the same sort of, I used the wrong word again, but this disjointed idea of movement and the flow through and using whatever's appropriate in the time. But I was struck by a phrase, is it Arabizi? Arabizi is just, that's, you're talking about the intro, right? Like yes, that's where, right. Yeah, where yeah. I'm introducing at the beginning of the mm-hmm. book with a note on Arabic words and transliteration. Yeah. And so I had to think at one point how to uh, write the Arabic words or expressions in that book. There were different methods that I used depending on the poem and its tone, right? In some poems and in some parts of the book, it is in Arabic, in the Arabic language, as you know, as it is. And in other uh, instances, I had to transliterate, as in use, you know, the English alphabet to write an Arabic word. And there is the sort of older method of transliteration uh, where the sound, for example, like ba'a, how would you transliterate the sound uh, in the middle of the word? And we have that in Arabic, right? And that used to be just like a sort of an apostrophe or, or something. Mm-hmm. And I use that. But there is also Arabizi. Arabizi is, I think, I'm not sure how it came about, but we use it mostly in texting. Mm-hmm. And on like, on, like when, when the phones did not have the Arabic alphabet yes, yeah. yet, or maybe that you're not used to switching and writing in Arabic. So you want to write to your mom mm-hmm. something in Arabic, but using the English you know, alphabet, and so the letter seven uh, came about to represent the h sound. The the letter, uh, sorry, the number seven. The number two is the uh, and the number three is the a. Uh. And so one of my chapbooks actually is called the Arabi Song. And if you see the cover of Arabi Song, it reads. If you if you if you don't know the system, it would read as three Arabi. That's that's how my uh, non-Arabic friends read it. A three Arabi song, but it's an Arabi song because the letter three looks like the letter a in the Arabic alphabet. So it's like it's like something you use very informally in the Arab world using texting. And I know that some people really look down upon that being used in poetry and that, you know, you're you're betraying the Arab language. And But I used it where I thought it was appropriate, where the tone of the poem was that of a text message, where it made sense that mm-hmm. I use Arabizi. And so that's how I navigated these dif- different transliteration systems. Yeah. I really liked it. I had no idea what the sounds were when I was reading it yeah. this morning. I didn't have time to look into it. Also, the connection between your writing and Sophia's is that by leaving those phrases in, it's more appropriate because part of the point is that some of these words will be missed in the translation or the transliteration. That, and, that and they the will reading. be yes, they they will be missed, and also that we actually do use them this way. Yeah. Like we we write this way, yeah. like even Arabs among one another. Mm-hmm. When I text my husband, when I text my mom, I use Arabizi. Mm-hmm. So it, it does exist in our reality. There's, there's no point saying, no, I only write in the Arabic alphabet when I send messages to my mother. <laughs> it's not true. I do both. Mm-hmm. So There should be a way to communicate because <laughs> I can't text butter. Right? The way yeah. I say it. Yeah. You're quite yeah. right there. I think we should, I should uh, get so in contact with Nokia. So you should put Nokia a two <laughs> in the middle after the U. So B-U-2-R. Uh, there we go. I'm going to look further into this. Mm-hmm. I think we'll take a second reading, please, Zainab. Right. Let's read You Fixed It. That's a poem that I don't usually read mm-hmm. because it's a bit difficult to read. I don't know why, but like just voicing it is, is in the, the line. It's difficult. But, but I found out that I should read it more often. And I think this poem is rather inspired by my hometown, Tripoli, Lebanon, rather than Beirut. I'm, I'm looking at whether there are references that I should explain before reading. No, I think, I think they're pretty much self-explanatory. So this is called You Fixed It. And if the compass broke, you fixed it, fastened the pencil to it with a rubber band. And if there was no hot water, you fixed it, learned to sit on that plastic stool in the bathroom and count. And if it was too cold outside, you fixed it. And there was the smell of burnt lemon on the brazier with a click, 
click, click of the gas heater. And if you were bored, you fixed it. Learned to cut paper and color the scraps. Learned to write on the walls. And if you wrote on the walls, you fixed it. Scrubbed them with your mom who yelled at your big brother who what on earth was he doing just watching? And if the TV blurred, you fixed it. Adjusted the antenna to catch those Japanese cartoons translated into Arabic on the Syrian channel. And if the cartoons hadn't begun, you fixed it. Danced to those nationalistic Syrian songs about Hafiz, repeated, Yahala, 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 hey. And if you didn't have enough books, you fixed it. Read that French-Arabic dictionary the size of your torso, stared at the words crépuscule and shafaq. And if you tripped on the missing tile, you fixed it. Learned to count your steps in the dark afternoon without electricity. And if there was no electricity, you fixed it. Gauged how dark it was by whether or not you can see your thumb. And if you couldn't see your thumb, you fixed it. Got the candle from under the sink. And if the sink was leaking, you fixed it. Tied the cloth to the pipe. And if the pipe burst, you fixed it. Press your palms against the hole in the wall until mom called the grocer to call the butcher to call the plumber next to him and if there was a hole in your sock you fixed it learned to fold it under your big toe and if your window shattered you fixed it taped cardboard to the frame and if someone died you fixed it by telling stories about how crusty their lahm bajin was and if the lahm bajin was too crusty you fixed it by dipping it in the tahini and if your sorrow hardened, you fixed it by dipping it in seawater. And if your country hardened, if your country hardened, you fixed it by dipping it in song. Leading on from that, maybe it would be nice to talk about ideas of responsibility and obligation. Because on Saturday when we met after the London Poetry Magazine Fair, we were talking about obligations toward other poets and how we pass on our knowledge by either going into education or starting events, giving people a platform. Maybe we could start by just talking about Punch, which you run, uh, started and run in Dubai. In Dubai, yeah. Uh, when did I start Punch? I think it was about four and a half years ago. So when I moved to Dubai, there were no poetry readings. There was only a collective that is run by my very good friend, a Palestinian filmmaker and poet, Hint Shufani, called Poeticians at the time. And I read with them, but then they had less and less events. And I, I wanted more events. I wanted both the chance to read and the chance to listen to other people reading. And just like out of a very selfish need, I think to just like connect with other people in the city who love poetry and who love literature. Like, where are you? I need people to talk to about all of this. And so that's how Punch came about. Usually I try to strike a sort of balance where I ask certain poets that I know would read well and then also have an open mic where people just email me and sign up. I try to have at least eight to 10 people on the open mic each time, depending on, on the time and on, on the readers. That's how it's been and, and it's grown. I mean, we started with literally like maybe 30 people in the audience. And now every time we do a punch night, you have something between 80 to 100 people in the audience. And I do think that it's created this communal safe space where people can just sort of come up and read and be welcomed and then sort of linger afterwards and discuss poetry and discuss spoken word and have conversations about literature and just meet people who are interested in what you're interested in. So that's what we've been doing. And it's quite energy consuming for me to do it every time. I'm trying to be more relaxed about it and say, just, you know, just put a date, run it and go with it. And so it's, it's becoming easier every time. And it's always fun to host. I mean, I do actually like literally have fun just hosting it. Just it's very, very laid back, cracking jokes getting the audience to sort of shout and filming them, whatever, like we do silly stuff and also read poetry. But yeah, I think it's, it's necessary 
to have those spaces in the city. And it's not always good readings that you get. So on the open mic, you would get people where you sort of sometimes whinge and say, oh my God, you know, what, what are they doing? But that is okay. That too is necessary. And, the, and then you also get people on the open mic who, who shock you in a very pleasant way. And they're usually like younger, still students at school, you know, maybe 17, maybe 18 year olds who are, uh, who have like a, this big personality. And it's disgusting, they, isn't it, how some of these young people <laughs> are so talented? <laughs> I hate it. Talented. It makes me feel, I don't go to events, anymore. Uh. it makes me feel horrible. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they are, they are ahead of us. Uh, so I think it's necessary for a city to have these spaces. I did not grow up with these spaces. I definitely didn't, did ha had nowhere to go or to express myself when I was 17 or 18. And, and, and I'm really glad that, I, that we had no videos or cameras. You know, and mm -hmm. like, like the 17-year-old yeah, yeah, me yeah, might yeah, have yeah. put something on YouTube that I would have cried watching now. So that protected me, I think, to my, a certain My extent. sibling <laughs> has just started um, recording music and doing open mics, singing and playing yeah. the guitar. And I cannot, so there are 19 years between us. I'm 19 years older. Oh, wow. Um, yeah, and I cannot even begin to contemplate how horrible that must be to know that you're being filmed on your very first performance your very first time up on the stage I've just tangled myself completely here, <laughs> <isn't it? laughs> funny. yeah I wish we had a visual for the audience yeah, yeah, to yeah, see yeah. Yeah. I've got extremely long legs and <laughs> I'm always tied up in these cables but yeah this idea that you can't you may I think you make a very good and honest point there that there will be elements of the open mic that might make you cringe and won't be to your taste, but it's vitally important that people have a space to get up and mm -hmm. try, isn't it? Because mm -hmm. where else do you learn, you know? Yeah. And so that was part of your thinking, was it just to give everyone a space um, to... And has there been anything grown out of that? Are there, in what way do people then go on to discuss ideas around poetry? Is it just at these events or...? No, I think just at these events, just at these events they end up discussing, but I think friendships are formed friendships are formed that don't necessarily include me you know like friendships in the audience are formed and discussions are formed and you know people will come up to you and ask you a question about poetry and how do you publish and what do you suggest that I do and you know all of that so it's it's sort of on the spot I could take it further if I wanted to maybe and have like a punch workshop uh, every now and then where we just sort of sit and discuss uh, discuss stuff uh, I just don't personally have the time to do that right now, but that could happen. After Punch, other poetry collectives in Dubai started forming mainly the, the Dubai Poetry Slam, who are younger than us, again, <laughs> I hate them, for, you know, younger than us. But what's really nice is that like the Dubai Poetry Slam people are almost always there at the punch night. And I try to be at the uh, at their events as much as possible, and we sort of like tweet each other. Yes. So, so we, we even like it's it's not a relationship where oh other events in the city are my like uh, you know you know we're not divas. It's like yes, please, the more the merrier. So what I would like for Punch to do is for also to maybe inspire someone sitting in the arts to start their own night, whether whether it be something curated or it's open mic or whether it's just like a workshop where we're saying let's talk about poetry you know anything just to tell the younger people that you can start something you know don't be scared just start it and, and see what happens yeah we're gonna finish with a third and final reading but if before you do that if you could tell people where they can check you out the website um, about your publisher for this collection? Um, yes, so uh, they can go to www.zainahashembeck.com. I won't spell out my name. I guess I'll it'll put be it on the, the link. I'll put yeah. it in the link in the episode description. Yeah. <laughs> it's not an easy name to spell out. Everything's on my website. And even a link to how they might order all the collections is on the website. And this particular book is out from Bound Publishing because it has won the 2016 May start New Hampshire Poetry Prize that they organize. It's a yearly prize that they organize. And so, yeah, they can, they can purchase it online. And I know that my publisher has a distributor here in the UK and that it will be in some bookstores, but I have no idea where, <laughs> like literally. No. I'm going to give the Poetry Library two copies, so Excellent. it'll be yeah. here. 
I think I'm going to go because you fixed it ended with uh, and if your country hardened you fixed it with so with song and I think that is a central idea in the book is to that, that the fact that yes there are there are wars around us that we witness every day in the Arab world and we should witness that and write about that which is something I do throughout the collection but there's also lots of celebration and singing and and resisting just grief and I think this poem does that that it fixes it with song or tries to fix it with song the poem itself is titled after an an Arabic song by uh, the Algerian singer Warda and the poem is titled Fayoum Wilela. Fayoum Wilela means in a day and a night and there's a part here where you know, it goes female boro, viceroy, fi gitan. It means there is, there, there is gitan, there's Marlboro. That, like we have those cigarettes, sort of, you know, the Arabic. So this is fiom wilela. Spare me this Arab love for dictators tonight. Come closer. Listen. Warda is singing. Fiom wilela. This day, this night, let us push this talk of the land to the side. Spare me this Arab love for conspiracy tonight. Lower your voice to the sound of my pupils. Look at me. Let's music instead. Let's cigarette. Let's wine and laughter. Let's call friends. Remember how our mothers used to serve cigarette packs on trays to their guests? Fi malboro, fi gitan, fi viceroy, they said. Every house had them, cigarette trays. Some nights the politics settled with the ashes and the jokes came, the clapping, the Allah, Allah rising with the smoke, the dancing. Time tortures Everyone, let's heal a little. Ask me if I could ever love again. Let's exaggerate. Ask me if there will ever be arms like mine. Warda is singing, she'd been missing you long before she'd met you. I missed you before I met you too. And now, Habibi, even more, even more. Thank you very much, Zainab. You're welcome. We um, were quite distracted by, at some point in my head, I was like, the Allah, Allah, and I'm like, am I going to be arrested now <laughs> in the middle of the yeah, uh, royal there are, there are festival? <laughs> oh, shouting Allah, Allah, <laughs> you know. Um, I actually thought that saying it. Yeah. <laughs> Did you think that? Um, thank you very much Zaina. and thank you to Raymond for introducing us um, yeah thank you Ray shout out to yeah, yeah.